God bless you guys. Thank you so much. What a wonderful time of worship. Amen? Good to see you all in the house of the Lord this morning. Welcome to Sovereign Grace Baptist Church. Um, at this time, are there any children that need to be dismissed? They may go. There we go. The, uh, our tradition here is five years old and younger, but parents always have that dis- uh, discernment. If you wish for your children to stay in here, you can. If they need to go out, they are more than welcome. But I will also add another caveat that, that today's uh, sermon text will be centered around the children coming to Jesus as well. So I know that they will be blessed with, uh, with the ladies here as they take them out, Colleen and Joy. They will be studying catechisms and memorizing scripture. And they always enjoy going into their little space dedicated just for them. Amen. As we come to this passage of God's Word today, it's going to be Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. So if you'll turn with me there, I must come to you with a confession. Matthew 19, 13 through 15 was a text that was not on my original schedule of sermon texts. Um, I had intended to pass over this passage because of the sermon that was on August the 4th in Matthew 18, verses 1 through 6. It was in that text that Jesus taught the emphasis of the heart of a child or the little one in the kingdom of heaven. So what he said in Matthew 18, verses 3 through 4, Truly I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So I felt that Matthew's inclusion of the scene with Jesus here, blessing children in Matthew 19, was redundant. It was just another past emphasis on the greatness of the child in the kingdom of heaven. But the more I prayed about it, the more I prayed through Matthew 19, and I studied this passage in particular, this lesson from Jesus, the more I was convinced that I was in the same error as the disciples here, that Jesus rebuked because I was hindering the children coming to Jesus. So if you'll forgive me for that, I too fell into the error that children were not important enough to our understanding of the gospel. So I want to go back into Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15 here, because I was originally going to skip it. So if you'll stand with me as we stand in reverence for the reading of God's word, let us read Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. Very brief passage, but very important to our understanding of coming to Christ. Then the children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people, but Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and went away. Let's pray. Father God, we pause at the reading of your word and we see another scene of some coming to Christ with enthusiasm. Here we see parents and adults bringing children to Jesus so that he could touch them and bless them. But then there were those who saw this as a hindrance, as a bother to Jesus The children were insignificant. Jesus had more important things to do than to pay attention to little ones. 
But Lord, thank you so much for this message from your son that it's the heart of the child that you pre- that you see as precious. It's the heart of the child that you see as most valuable in your kingdom. And how dare we as adults stop them? So God, I pray that you would give us all pause this morning as we listen to your word, as we pause and understand our role as adults in the lives of the children that you have given us to be responsible for. Even if we are no longer parents or we're not parents yet, there are children in our influence, dear God, that you have brought into our influence for a reason. So God, I pray that you would forgive us for overlooking the importance of the child, that you would inspire us, motivate us, stir us to have the same excitement as these children and to bring them with joy to Christ. Lord, let today be for your glory. Let this day be for your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. At the heart of this text, Matthew 19, 13 through 15, is a theme that is important enough to the kingdom of heaven that the Gospels of Mark and Luke both include it. We're going to look at some of those nuances of the wordings in those texts here in just a minute, but this scene of children coming to Jesus was included in both Mark's account and Luke's account. And furthermore, this passage has birthed traditions and conflict in the history of the church around infant baptism, also known as paedo-baptism. And in Reformed-minded circles, I'm seeing this becoming more and more of an issue, especially among young families, young mothers and fathers. We have had folks visit this church who are new to the area, and they were young families, And they chose not to join our church because of this issue of infant baptism. They wanted their children, infants and toddlers, to be baptized. That's not a tradition we hold in this church. And so this really was an issue, and it was a, it was one that they could not get past. So I've had these conversations recently more often than I, I really can share with you, but it's becoming a, a topic in reformed-minded Baptist circles. We even have young families leaving Baptist churches over this issue of paedo-baptism, so they want their children baptized as infants. And so this is this is one of these texts that is the foundation for that argument, and we're going to look at it. And secondly. This passage also causes us to pause in our deeper understanding that salvation is not for the adults alone. And that salvation is also not for the adults to determine. Jesus blesses. Jesus saves. He does both. Two things, both important, but blessing and salvation are not the same. And I think that is part of the, heart, the, the root of the confusion in paedo-baptist arguments that we're going to look at here. So Jesus imparts the gift of salvation, not always to the rational adult. See, we're, we're, we're rational adults. When we reach that age of adulthood, we can reason anything, can't we? We can even reason away our sin, adults. We can justify our sin, especially to our children and the young ones, oh, 
that's for adults only. You'll figure it out when you're old enough. So salvation that comes from Jesus is not for the rational adult alone, but, but salvation is also to the child with a mind and heart that is still yet to mature. We can't forget that. I mean, actually, it's, it's the heart of, and mind of a child that Jesus praises above the rationale of the adult mind. Remember back in 1914, he says, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. He says, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. And underline this, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. Heart and mind of a child. I mean, so, so will you please forgive me for initially wanting to skip this passage? I, I do. I, I come to you humbly. I mean, I, I was going to skip this. Um, I, I mean, I have the honor of listening to questions about God and baptism and salvation from many of the kids in our church recently, more so than before. And this is probably what stirred my heart to not skip over this. We have many young children in our church, young children, little ones, and then preteens and up, they are coming to me privately with questions. To one, uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I shared the ontological argument, Chad, with him. Didn't use that language, but he was trying to say, how do I even know that God exists? Fundamental questions of the faith coming from the heart of a child. And my, my, I shared with this young person, I said, well, the fact that you have the very idea that there is a God, you have to ask yourself, where did that thought come from? Children are coming to you as adults, to me with questions. It's a wonderful thing to see. And we cannot ignore that God works in the hearts of, of children who are not yet mature. And we as adults have to re- be aware of this. I mean, these interactions with some of these kids in our congregation, that actually caused me to not pass over this text. And so so my heart is warm knowing that God's Spirit is stirring the minds of children concerning what they hear about the gospel at home, in their families, from their parents, in the Bible studies we have here at Sovereign Grace on Sunday mornings and Wednesday nights, And they're also hearing it from this pulpit. They're surrounded, they're immersed with the Word of God all around them. And that is a good thing. They have questions. I mean, so I think it's important to pause here in Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15. And we need to listen to the words of our Savior Jesus and, and His call to bring children to Him and not to hinder them because Jesus is calling them to through the Spirit of God. I mean, because salvation is for all who believe. I mean, I'm firmly convinced that kids are more apt to come to Christ than adults are because adults carry the baggage of habit and independence and their own adult reasoning. Adults will reason their, their, their way out of the kingdom. Kids aren't there. They're more prone to accept and believe. And why do we as adults stop them? Look here at verse 13. Then children were brought to him so that he might lay his hands on them and pray. And then see what happened. The disciples rebuked the people. I mean, this small section of Matthew 19 may seem insignificant, 
to the overall theme of chapter 19. But, but in a way, if we pay close attention to the flow of the argument, the flow of the presentation of the scenes here by Matthew, he had a message on marriage in the kingdom of heaven. So the emphasis on children is a natural outcome of the proper relationship of marriage. I think that's why Matthew includes this exactly where he does. Because, I mean, remember that the Pharisees first asked the inappropriate question concerning permission to divorce for any cause back in verse 3. And then the misguided interpretation of the disciples that it was better not to marry in verse 10. So now the lesson on the kingdom's importance of marriage leads to the obvious production of children. If God emphasizes the beauty and of marriage... Of course, he's going to emphasize the beauty of children. That's what marriage is for, folks. Despite what our modern world tells us, that marriage is for the the pleasure and the satisfaction of myself. So that when my wife or my husband disappoints me, I can get rid of them. No, marriage, in God's eyes, is bigger than that. And the production of children, I think, is one of the biggest blessings of it. So it's apparent in this verse, verse 13, that parents, or I want to say even other related adults, brought children to Jesus for a purpose. I mean, these adults saw the great value in Jesus' blessing over them. Jesus' blessing over these little ones. Back in Matthew 18, verse 10, we saw this idea of the little ones implied that was these little ones who were insignificant or smaller. It was the idea that the least of the society, the less valuable in the context of children that Jesus said were to be cherished in the kingdom of heaven. Remember, he brought a child in amongst the crowd there and used that child as an illustration for everyone to see that it was the heart of the child that that God looks for. It was the heart of the child. Like this child, you will be the greatest. If, If you are humble like this child, you will be seen as the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, these children here in Matthew 19, 13, a different word than what was used in Matthew 18, 10. Matthew 18, 10 used the word micron, which literally is translated insignificant or little. Here in Matthew 19, 13, the word paideia is used, literally translated children. They were cherished by our Lord so much that the adults in their lives brought them to him for his blessing. I mean, the Westminster Reformed tradition views the parent's desire for blessing as the desire for salvation. And the Westminster Confession is a Reformed idea of confession that is really the foundation of this idea of paedobaptism. And the paedobaptist tradition argues that this passage, Matthew 19, verses 13 through 15, and then the parallel passages, Mark 10, 3 through 6, and Luke 18, 15 through 17, these passages, they say, speak so directly to the baptism debate, and this is a quote, that it almost settles it single-handedly. Well, I'm here to argue that it does not. Because the Pado-Baptist position here has a lot of holes in it. And I want to help us understand, we don't have a, a 15-week semester course to understand this. We could. We only have, some people have told me to keep it short today because we're eating. So I'm going to try to do this in 25 to 30 minutes. Y'all with me? Okay. 
Here is what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Again, this is the Presbyterian foundation for their doctrine. It says in chapter 28, section 4, not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. That's what the Westminster Confession of Faith says. Two passages in Scripture are cited by the Paedo-Baptist, and they compare the covenant promise of circumcision for Abraham to the new sign of the covenant of grace in baptism. Romans chapter 4, verse 11 says this, And he received, speaking of Abraham, And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith, which he had yet being uncircumcised, that he might be the father of all them that believe though they be not circumcised, that righteousness might be imputed unto them also. So that's Romans chapter 4, verse 11, talking about circumcision in the line of Abraham as a sign of the covenant. And then in Colossians 2, verse 11, the panel Baptists cite this passage, actually it's uh, verses 11 and 12 of Colossians 2, where Paul shows us the connection of circumcision to the new image of the covenant in baptism. Verse 11, In whom also ye are circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Hearing that? Talking about baptism. In putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, wherein also ye are risen with him through the faith of the operation of God who hath raised him from the dead. And so this is just a beginning of trying to understand the Pado-Baptist argument. That biblically, I mean, the Apostle Paul does make a connection between the sign of circumcision and the, the sign of baptism. Yet, I don't think that there's not enough evidence in Scripture to justify that we baptize children as a sign of the covenant for their salvation. I mean, the evidence of Jesus not only receiving the children of these believers who come to him, but he actually, in saying that the kingdom of God belongs to them for a pedo baptist is clear evidence that he regarded these children to be members of God's covenant people. And for this reason, the pedo baptist sees no other valid reasons to withhold from them the sign of covenant baptism. And they baptize them as because they are believing parents, they baptize their children into the covenant. There are, there, are, there, are, there are two issues with this line of reasoning. First, there is the assumption that the parents or the adults here who bring children to Jesus are believers themselves. There's an assumption there. We're, I mean, they were themselves accepted into the kingdom of heaven as Christians, followers of Christ. That's the assumption. But the great crowds of people who follow Jesus, now they certainly contain believers, but we also have evidence that many, many in the great crowds were just curious onlookers or even scoffers, clearly not believers. I mean, this observation would even agree with another pedo baptist position that even if a child of a Christian family was not a genuine believer in Christ, so what? The faith of the parents will be theirs too. That's the assumption. 
So until such a day as the child professes faith in the salvation of Jesus Christ, the paedo-baptist says they are covered by the baptism of covenant under the participation in covenant by their parents. But the problem is the biblical evidence is we can't guarantee that all of the adults who followed Christ in the great crowds were themselves believers. Also here in verse 13, we can't assume that all of the adults who brought children to Jesus themselves were believers. Secondly, Jesus said that the kingdom of God belongs to them. The Paedo-Baptist sees this, this wording, as evidence that Jesus regarded the children brought to him for a blessing to be members of God's covenant people. Yet, here's the problem. The words of Jesus in these passages do not indicate that these children were members of the kingdom of God. Here's the wording. Notice this. The words of the text are very carefully worded. Jesus does not say that the kingdom belongs to these. He says that the kingdom belongs to such as these. Indicating that he's using the children as an illustration for a broader point. Again, Jesus is making an illustration here with the presence of the children, just as he did back in Matthew 18, verse 4. Whoever humbles himself like a child, is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And then again in Matthew 19, 14, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them what? For to such, or some translations, for to such as these belongs the kingdom of heaven. Notice the way it's worded. It's not that Jesus is saying that the kingdom belongs to them. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to the like them or such as them. Very important distinction of wording. So the argument from the Pedo-Baptist that Jesus welcomed these children as believers, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, merely because of the faith of their parents, I don't think there's supported evidence here. I mean, it's obvious from these texts that Jesus continues an illustration to teach a point about the heart of all believers who are welcomed into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, the heart of all believers must be like that of a child who is dependent, trusting, humble. Remember, we looked at that back in Matthew 18. All adults, are you hearing me? Jesus is expecting us as adults to be dependent. That's hard for us to do. (laughs) He's expecting us to be trusting. That's hard for us to do. He's expecting us to be humble. Oh, that's really hard for us to do. But that's what Jesus is teaching here. And the children, he's pointing to them as, you got to be like them. He's not saying that the kingdom is theirs. It's for them who are like them. Y'all are with me? Some of you are. Good. I mean, another argument from the Pado-Baptist actually comes from Luke 18. So if you can, let's turn over to Luke 18, verses 15 through 17. Now, let's take a look at that quickly, because this is a parallel passage to what we saw in Matthew 19. So Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. I'm going to read it. It's very similar, but just the wording is just a little bit different. Now, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying... 
Let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to what? Such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Now here, Luke's account indicates that clearly infants were brought as well. And when you look at the wording here of, of Luke's account, Luke 18, 15, and then the other accounts in Matthew and Mark, you, the words used there clearly show that the age range was from infancy up to around 12, ideally. Yet the words in the passages in Mark and Luke are the words of Jesus who specifically states the idea that math, what Matthew again expresses back in Matthew 18, that these children served as illustrations only of the required entry into the kingdom of heaven. That's what he was doing. So, yeah, was Jesus using the kids? Sure. He still loved them. He still blessed them. It wasn't like he was rejecting them. But he was saying, hey, adults, look, you see these kids? I love them so much because they love me with a child's hearts. That's what he was doing. I mean, here's what he said in Matthew, in Luke 18, 17. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God, what? Like a child shall not enter it. And then back in Mark 10, 15, truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. Same words. So Jesus always understood the hearts of all who came to him in the crowds or those who listened to him from a distance. He always understood the hearts. Again, I mean, the the passages of adults bringing children to Jesus for a blessing actually shows more the tradition of the day to bring children to a great rabbi or a great teacher for blessing. That was the tradition. You brought your children to the teacher for the teacher to touch them and bless them. That's That was the tradition. It wasn't that these adults, these parents, were bringing children for salvation. They were coming in the tradition of the rabbis to touch and to heal, or just to bless I mean, the blessing that Jesus gives, it wasn't accepting them into the kingdom as believers. He was just blessing them because they were children. The fact that these adults brought their children to Jesus, I mean, again, cannot be cited as evidence of even the parents' salvation, much less Jesus granting salvation to the child. I mean, it was common practice for children to, be again, be brought to rabbis for a blessing in this way. And we see this same tradition here, folks. We may not bring our children to pastors or to great religious teachers for a blessing, but there's a lot of people who will bring their children to a politician for him to kiss. Same mindset. That's the point. So you want the blessing of a politician? You want a blessing of a rabbi, teacher, pastor, priest? Same thinking here. That's the point. I mean, if you want to bring your children for me to bless, I'll say, hey, I'm happy for you. Bless you, God. Don't, don't count me as anything more important than just you, okay? But that's, again, that's why the church has the tradition of, of blessing of children. I mean, we've done that. Um, and parents, if you want to talk to me about a, a, a time of blessing over a new child in your family, we'll, we'll talk about a church-wide agreement to bless your family together. We'll do that, okay? 
Now, another argument from the Paedobaptist comes from this Luke account that infants were brought to him for a blessing. That's why Luke 18, 15 in their argument is so important because clearly even infants were brought. But the regenerate, truly changed status of the parents again is the crucial argument for infant baptism. I mean, the problem is that this passage does not say that these parents were believers. Again, there's no indication that these all of these parents were believers in Christ, much less welcomed into the kingdom. I mean, actually, it would be honest to say that most of the parents in the crowds may not have been true believers at all. We see evidence of this in John chapter 6, when following the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus' greatest miracles, there were many who tried to follow Jesus, and it was proved that they were not genuine believers, even though they were blessed by the miracle of feeding. In John chapter 6, verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Jesus was telling them, you have followed me across the Sea of Galilee for another free meal. That's the only reason you're here. You're not here for me. You're wanting another bread feast. Well, I am the bread of life, he tells them. And they can't handle that truth. But when you look at John 6, following in verse 64, he says, but there are some of you, this is the words of Jesus, there are some of you who do not believe. And John tells us, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. So there we have evidence that even non-believers came to Jesus. And even Jesus still taught them. So possibly even here as parents and adults were bringing children to Jesus, we could conclude perhaps many of them were not believers either. So the Pado-Baptist argument that a parent's faith in Christ comes to the children is not supported. Now, back in Matthew and John chapter 6, in verses 66 through 67, here's what it says again. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Another sign of a non-believer. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? So there's evidence in Scripture that disciples followed Jesus and left Jesus. A sign that they weren't true believers anyway. The word in Luke 18, 15, that's translated infants, it is the normal word for babies, usually translated in the scripture as such, uh, or little toddlers. I mean, it appears that the children could have been, again, a mixture of ages, anywhere from infancy to 12 years old. But, But I also want to point out this point. What is the difference between blessing and salvation? And I think that's another area in the Pedal-Baptist argument that gets muddied. There's a final kink here. There are two Greek words, actually there's three Greek words that really can mean salvation and has been translated as such. Uh, the Apostle Paul likes to use metaneo or epistrepho. These two words imply a change of mind or to turn. A change of mind or to turn. Another word is often used is soterio, uh, meaning really a rescue to general safety, implying that you're in danger and someone is saving you from danger and bringing you to a place of safety. So we have to ask ourselves, are all sinners in a place of danger? Yes. And the salvation of Jesus Christ brings you to a place of safety. 
But also salvation is understood biblically as a change of the mind. Turning. It's both and. So there's this final kink in the Pedro-Baptist argument is that Jesus' blessing of the children by laying on of hands to them equals salvation. In other words, as Jesus is blessing, he is rescuing them from danger. And the children are somehow changing their minds. Don't know that 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 holds water. I don't see that. I mean, this is a grave assumption in the Pato-Baptist argument. Blessing is not the same as saving. God does bless. God blesses all of creation with life and breath. Even the non-believer, the pagan, is blessed by God with the ability to breathe and to exist. But God saves the believer in Christ Jesus. We call them the elect. So blessing and saving are not necessarily the same. And that thing is another argument in the Pato baptist argument that's, that has a little bit of problem. But as we mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith earlier, I think it'd be appropriate to cite the 1689 Second London Confession of Faith that is rich in the Baptist tradition and it concerns baptism. Chapter 29, if you're taking notes, sections 1 and 2 says this, Baptism is an ordinance of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ to be under the party baptized, a sign of his fellowship with him in his death and resurrection of his being engrafted into him as a remission of sins and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to live and walk in newness of life. We were blessed by baptizing Lizzie Stewart last week. We witnessed this. Right, Lizzie? You can say amen to that too. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, right? But then and further, here's the tradition. Those who do actually profess repentance towards God, faith in and obedience to our Lord Jesus are the only proper subjects of this ordinance. So the Baptist tradition says only those who actually profess repentance and obedience to our Lord Jesus are the only proper subjects for baptism. A little difficult for an infant to do that. It's also a little difficult, I would argue, even for a small toddler to do that. So how do we apply these passages today to our biblically supported believer's baptism? We hold at this church believer's baptism. As much as I love young families, and it breaks my heart to tell them, no, we will not baptize your infant. And unfortunately, it's becoming more and more of an issue with young 20-something families, even in the Baptist tradition. Many of them are turning to this. First, how do we apply this? First, adult Christians, we eagerly desire that our children come to Christ. Amen? Are there any parents in here who do not want their children to come to Christ? If that is your thought pattern, talk to me afterwards, please. That might be a sign that you're not a Christian. I mean, so it's obvious that Christians desire, that we eagerly desire our children to come to Christ. It's a passion of our hearts. And often this can be to the detriment of the child because we want to push them to believe. And here's the language, to accept Jesus into their little hearts. 
That, I think that's the phrase in the, in the tradition of the church that has done more harm than any other phrase in the history of the church. Because accepting Jesus into your heart is not biblical. Mothers and grandmothers, fathers and grandfathers, will, we will often pray for our children to come to faith, and we rightly should. But think about it. Good intentions can manipulate the child if we're not careful to seek baptism as the way to honor his or her mother or father. So if we're not careful, we can push a child to be baptized simply to make mommy and daddy happy. I mean, baptism can be pushed upon a child too early when the Holy Spirit has not convicted this child of his or her sin. The child may be too immature to reason exactly what sin is. God's effectual call is the language. His effectual call has a timing, and God's timing is always perfect, especially in the salvation of his little ones, his children. So parents, here's the caution. We can be too eager to help God, much the way that Sarah helped God when he promised Abraham offspring. That's a caution. It may be that we push to the point of actually baptizing an infant or toddler too early. So that's my caution. Yet secondly, a child may repent but not believe. How many of us have ever dealt with that with a wayward child? I'm sorry, mommy or daddy, but they really don't mean it. Anybody ever guilty of that? Even as a child, how many adults in here did that to their parents? I mean, just as an adult may do it, I mean, Scripture tells us of two forms of baptism. John the Baptist practiced a baptism of repentance, Matthew chapter 3. Jesus ushered in the baptism of the Holy Spirit, a baptism of belief, and that was clarified in Acts chapter 19 when there was a debate and and actually a misunderstanding about genuine baptism. There were some believers that the apostles discovered who were baptizing under John's baptism, but they had never heard of the baptism of belief under Christ. That's Acts chapter 19. So that helps us see that there's two different types of baptism mentioned. Maybe a child is repentant of his sinful behavior and is told again to accept Jesus into your heart so that you'll stop doing bad things. I mean, this would be the baptism of repentance and not really the baptism of belief. Got to be careful. Believing that the death of Jesus Christ on the cross forgives the guilt of sin is the only genuine kingdom entering belief in Scripture and the only criteria for baptism. Here's what it says in John chapter 6, verse 40. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him should have eternal life, and I will raise Him up on that last day. All, everyone who looks to the Son and believes has this promise. See, baptism symbolizes this death and this resurrection of Christ that the believer adheres to and believes. Here's what it says in, uh, uh, for with the heart one believes and is justified. This is Romans 10. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thirdly, Reformed-minded, biblically-focused adults 
We can also reason our children away from salvation and baptism altogether. How? By emphasizing that you have to wait for God's call. Are you hearing me, parents? The words of Jesus to the crowds who followed him after the feeding of the 5,000 miracle and his description of himself as the bread of life. Here in John 6, 45, here's what Jesus says. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. That's biblical. And I will raise him on the last day. But parents, how often do we stop there in verse 44 and we say, little child, you have to wait until the Father draws you to him. When the child is so excited and passionate about Jesus. Parents, be careful. But we often, when we read John 6, 44, where Jesus says, no one comes to the Father uh, unless he draws him, they often forget the words that follow in verse 45. Here's what Jesus says. It is written in the prophets... They will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So when you read verse six, John 6, 44, where Jesus says, unless the Father who sent me draws him, don't forget verse 45. All who have been taught and learned from the Father comes to me. Children who are under the teaching of Scripture, whether that be at home or in the church or both, have been taught the Scriptures. They have heard the voice of God. And this is what he says. Remember, those who have heard and learned from the Father comes to me. They come to Jesus Christ. Parents, hear me. I'm often troubled that children or teenagers or young adults hesitate to come to Jesus because they've been taught that only God calls who he wants to call and only who he wants to call. Make certain that you're called, they say. If you come to Christ with wrong intentions, they're taught, you may not be called. And a child will hear those words and say, well, I'm not called. Folks, I'm convinced that well-intentioned parents in this reformed-minded thinking and biblical thinking, we may overthink the biblical truth that what Jesus says in John 6, 44. We may overthink it. We may do more harm to our children than we expect, and then we fall into the error of the disciples who hindered the children from coming to Jesus in Matthew 19, 13, in Mark 10, 13, in Luke 18, 15. We don't want to be the disciples who hinder the child from coming to Christ. God-honoring parents, we may impose upon children the standard of reason possessed by adults that a child's mind cannot be held liable to. A child's level of reasoning is not the level of reasoning of an adult. But remember that Jesus says, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God or heaven like a child shall not enter it. Jesus does not say only the adult level of reasoning and logic will let you into the kingdom. Why then do we wrongly impose the mind of an adult on a child who, an adult who can reason the guilt of their sin and need for salvation upon a child who openly and like a child runs to Jesus? Why do we do that? 
I mean, I firmly agree that no toddler, I mean, that, that all toddlers, all toddlers will run to Jesus out of joy and excitement if you let them. Agreed? Isn't it amazing to watch a toddler get excited in church about Jesus? Even this morning, Carla was called the most fun teacher in our church by little Mary. Didn't she? She said, you were fun. Embrace that, adults. Amen? Embrace the excitement of a child. Now, again, I firmly agree that these toddlers will run, and we should never hinder them. Actually, we should encourage it. We should never soften or hinder their childlike excitement for Jesus. We should encourage the blessing of Jesus for all children like this. I mean, while I agree that a child may not fully understand the depth of their sin so that they can confess and believe the way an adult does, may I propose that there's a balance that should be considered for the age of reason argument that we have? There is an age of reason that we need to watch for in a child. I agree with that. But I think there needs to be a balance here in our consideration. Can adults accept that the reason of a child's mind is actually more acceptable to Jesus than the reason of an adult's mind. Don't let that sink in. Actually, Jesus and the apostles, particularly Paul, proposed strong arguments against the reason of adults. The philosophies of men are to be avoided, they say. Yet we want a child to think more like an adult than a child. I mean, can adults then watch the heart and the expressions of that children's heart to honestly look for that childlike faith in Jesus that Jesus openly and purposefully commands? Can we look for that instead? I mean, whatever age is appropriate for a child to come to faith and be baptized is going to vary. But it's fully the responsibility of parents and the church together to watch for and to encourage I mean, my caution from these passages of Jesus as he accepts and embraces and he blesses little children is not to hinder the heart of a child from coming to Jesus by overthinking the need to understand forgiveness and salvation the way an adult does. Let's not put that burden on a child. I mean, if if we're not careful, we may reason a child away from the faith because their expression of faith is not as adult as we want it to be. I mean, if we fail in this responsibility to bring little children to the feet of Christ, will we then suffer his indignation due to their hindering their path? That's what Mark 10, 14 says. But when Jesus saw it, when he saw them stopping the children, he was indignant toward them. Parents, I pray that we never get into that place. Let's cherish the traditions and the ordinances of the church that is given to us, gifted by our Lord. Baptism and the Lord's table are the ordinances of the church that use our lives and our acts of worship to point to and to illustrate what? The sacrificial death of our Lord and His resurrection as the expression and evidence that His death paid the guilt price for our sin. I mean, let's guard the Lord's table for only those who are baptized believers, and we will do that today. This is why I ask that small children who have not confessed Jesus as Savior, who have not confessed that He has paid for their sins on the cross, and who have not followed in believers' baptism, they are not to participate at the Lord's table by request. And I have had families 
come to our church in years past who wanted to join our church, and this was a deal breaker for them. Actually, one lady was a grandmother, and she brought her grandchildren to here. And because I asked politely, do not let them come to the table unless they are baptized believers, she felt I was hindering them from coming to Christ. And they didn't want to join the church. But this is something that's biblical. So here's the question. May I encourage us all this to do this? This is just encouragement. Parents and adults in this Christian body of believers. Can we eagerly point children to Jesus? Yeah. Let's do that. Amen. Let's teach them things. To eagerly join with them in their childlike excitement. Maybe we adults need to learn from the kids too. Kids who are in the room. Anyone who is under the age of 18. Particularly those who are around 12 and under. We need your energy and excitement, kids. Y'all ready for that? The kids are going. (laughs) So kids, I mean, Scripture says that you have more excitement than adults. So is this more excitement than us? See my point? Kids, we need you in the church body to wake up the stale parents. Be excited for Jesus. Ian, be excited for Jesus. Tanner, be excited for Jesus, even though you're over 12. Everybody. Be excited for Jesus. Adults, don't stop that excitement and that joy. We are given children for a precious time to encourage them, to teach them, to point them to Christ. My caution is, let's not overthink this. Yes, we need to be cautious. We need to watch for genuine heart change. We need to watch for a genuine belief in Jesus Christ. And we need to teach our children how to think about this and to express it. Yet, Let's not impose the burden of adult reasoning or a theological treatise that they must know by heart before they can come to Christ. Amen. Here's the thing, though. We're all called to this general revelation of God's truth, but it's the particular calling of the individual heart that we need to watch for. But we got to be careful. We can overthink it. Let's honor the appropriate age of reason. I would say older than an infant or a toddler, but not yet the age of adult, I think might be the appropriate age of reason for all, for most, if not all, church kids. Particularly church. Now, if a child has not been raised in the church, it might be different for them. But church kids, I think the Lord may be working on their hearts much sooner than we give Him credit for. I'm not advocating for infant baptism. I'm not even advocating for bringing children who are toddlers to baptism. That's going to be a very specific call. But I think, parents, we can soften up a little bit and look at the heart of the child. you got to be careful. Because we're not all theologians, and we're not as scholarly as theologian might be. No child can ever be expected to articulate the answers of the faith as an adult does. But I want you to stop and think this. The children of this church can actually express the tenets of the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith as a catechism better than we adults can. Let that sink in. Kids, you are learning things that adults were never exposed to in our days of church growing up. You're being exposed to the catechisms of the faith, and you could articulate the catechisms of the faith better than all the adults in this room. So adults, 
Let's think about that. I mean, are you hindering a child with too harsh of an adult expectation? Have we been guilty of hindering a child in the past who is maybe now a teenager or a young adult who now confesses that they were never called to God to salvation because their parents told them growing up, you got to be careful, you got to be careful, you got to be careful, you got to be careful. And now they're adults and they say, well, my parents always told me to be careful, so God maybe never called me. There's a balance here. Maybe God is calling a young child to Christ right now. Maybe God waits for the heart of a child to mature because his or her heart is so hard. But maybe God is calling this young child anyway. And maybe Jesus is waiting to do more than merely bless a child but wants to receive this child into his kingdom. This is not a sermon to make adults feel guilty. This isn't a sermon to wake up adults to make sure that we're not hindering the wrong approach to Christ. Maybe in our homes we have failed as parents. Maybe we've never pointed our children to Christ. And I would say this, if if your home life focuses more on Pokemon than you do Jesus, there might be a problem. If your home life focuses more on Marvel movies, as much as I like Marvel superhero movies, than you do Jesus Christ, there may be a problem. Folks, we as adults have a responsibility to teach our children, to show them in our homes and in our lives the excitement and the joy of Jesus Christ. If we are not showing them that, are we hindering them from Christ? These are the words of our Savior. He was indignant, is the language, toward adults who dared stop children from coming to Him. How are, what are we doing, folks? Are we encouraging our children? Are we having fun with them in the Lord? Are we making church boring and dull? How many kids would like to have fun in church? I'm the only kid in this room who wants to have fun in church. You see the point here? Bill wants to have fun. We won't tell Colleen. She, he was like this, scared. Amen? So as the musicians come, We're going to transition now into a time of communion and worship at the Lord's table. This is what we do on the first Sunday of every month. We worship at the Lord's table together. And as uh, the men are coming as well to prepare to administer the elements, I must read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 27. As the men distribute the elements, I want you to keep this in mind. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. What is this unworthy manner? Ultimately, no one is worthy. We come to this table understanding that none of us are worthy. But an unworthy manner here might be a hard heart toward a fellow believer. A hard heart toward a family member. Could be that you're angry with God right now in something. That might be an unworthy manner. But the Word of God tells us, let a person examine himself then, 
And so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Use this time to examine your heart. Ask the Lord to reveal within you what needs to be seen. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you, Lord, for this time of worship. This is an ordinance, a command of your Son, Jesus Christ, to the church. To remember when we come together the sacrifice made for our sin. It is your Son, Jesus Christ, Father, who did this for us. And the bread represents his broken body. The juice represents his spilled blood. And Lord, I I ask you, I, I call upon you, dear Lord, please hear us. Soften our hearts. Wake us up to the truth of this sacrifice made for us. Humble us at this moment, Lord, as we remember. In Jesus' name.